In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, how do you know when it's time to quit? It feels weird to even be asking that question. I, I was raised in that generation like so many of you where we were taught you never quit anything. Don't quit. Push through. Fight through. Persist at all costs. But, as they tend to do, times have changed. And so has the advice, apparently. In their best-selling book, Mastering the Art of Quitting, Peg Streep and Alan Bernstein wrote this. Learning to quit is an important, conscious counterbalance to the built-in habits of mind, many of which are unconscious, which keep us committed to a path we would be better off abandoning. So what path would you be better off abandoning these days? Is it your job or a career that's draining you? Perhaps it's a friendship or a relationship that is actually hurting you. Or a hobby or a habit that is taking time away from things that should be more important and should take precedent in your lives? Or maybe it's a vice. Something that you just can't quit that is quite literally killing you. Or what about God? Or how about your faith? Or this whole church thing? When is it time to hop off that path? You know, no one would have blamed her if she had done exactly that. We don't know how she heard or what exactly she had heard about Jesus, but it was enough for her to get up that morning and to go seek him that day. Perhaps a family member of hers returned with one of those 12 baskets to their village you know, the leftovers from Jesus feeding the 5,000. Or maybe it was a neighbor who had heard Jesus speak and preached or who had watched him heal with their own eyes. Nevertheless, here is what she knew. She knew that this man was kind and gentle that he had compassion on the poor and the sick, and that he received all people and even healed them. And that was just about perfect because she was all of that. She was poor, she was in need, and she had nowhere else to go. And worst of all, her daughter had a demon. 
And no doctor, no medicine, no rabbi could do anything about it. And so when she heard this word about Jesus, this good news, she believed it. She knew that this man could help, could heal her daughter and set her free. What she couldn't have known was everything that Jesus had been going through. It had been a rough couple of days, even a rough matter of weeks for Jesus at that particular moment. If you remember, he was still mourning the death of his best friend, John the Baptist, who was brutally murdered. He had just fed those 5,000 families, and in response, they tried to take Jesus and force him to be their king. And when Jesus said, no, that's not why I've come, and he actually started to teach them why he came to be their savior, well, they all abandoned him and left. He hadn't slept for the past couple of nights. He actually been spending all of that time in prayer. And in the words just before our text, in the opening words of Matthew chapter 15, the the Jewish religious leaders have yet again set out to verbally attack him and his disciples. And so we're told for the second time in two chapters, Jesus withdrew. Mark's account of this story says it this way, Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Not only did Jesus go hide in a house, but he went and hid in a house in the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's an area that was just sort of northwest of Judea, up along the Mediterranean coast. In fact, this is the furthest that Jesus will ever be away from Israel in his entire earthly ministry. To understand the connection that exists between the region of Israel and Tyre and Sidon, you need to go back to the Old Testament. There was a time during the reigns of King David and Solomon when Israel had an alliance with their northern neighbors. In fact, we're told that the king of Tyre donated a ton of materials that were eventually used to build not only David's palace, but also Solomon's great temple to the Lord. But as they tend to do, the relationship between these two neighboring territories started to deteriorate with time. And it deteriorated when the princess of Tyre and the king of Israel got married. And you would think that would have united and joined those neighboring territories and nations all the more, but you have to know who that princess and who that king were. You might recognize the names of this power couple, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. And if those names don't ring a bell, that's fine. Recall last Sunday when we saw the prophet Elijah running for his life 
praying to the Lord, Lord, they have come after and killed all of your prophets. They've knocked down your, your, your altars. They have desecrated your temple. And now they are coming after me to take my life. And if you were wondering last Sunday, I wonder who the they is. Who would be coming after the Lord's prophet? Who would do that to God's house? Well, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. That's who. They, in fact, they did so much and brought on the destruction of not only Israel, but the complete and total fall of that kingdom in 722 B.C. Now, I share that, that history and that background with you so that you understand that Tyre and Sidon were not places that Jews typically went to withdraw for some peace and quiet. You see, it wasn't just that Tyre and Sidon were non-Israelite territories. This was enemy territory. A history of bad blood that no one had forgotten. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I guess that explains why Jesus was so rude to her. No. I mention that because it actually raises the question as to why Jesus was there at all. Think of how many times Jesus went somewhere or interacted with someone that good Jews wouldn't. What was his purpose? Like, why did Jesus go to Samaria that day? You remember who he met? He met another woman who had a really checkered past and an adulterous present, and she went out from her home in the middle of the day to the town well, hoping to go home with a jar of water. And after she met Jesus, she actually went home with the water of life. Or why did Jesus call the tax collector Zacchaeus down out of his tree and say to him, Zacchaeus, i got to come to your house today? Or call this gospel writer Matthew, this tax collector, out of the synagogue to be one of his disciples? Tax collectors, the most dishonest and despised people, all social outcasts, but Jesus wanted to be near them. Or think of all the sinful women that Jesus surrounded himself with. Or the unclean lepers. Jesus is constantly in the midst of sinful people in outskirt and unsanctified places. Why? You have to know the answer to that question. Not only to understand this text, but to understand Jesus. This woman, this Canaanite woman thought she knew the answer to that question. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. It was like she had won the lottery without ever buying a ticket. The one man who could help her just happened to be in her neighborhood that day. And there he is. He's so kind and loving. He's helped so many people. 
She calls him what he is, and she addresses him politely and correctly and respectfully. She put every last ounce of her hope, all of her dreams for a future for her child, all of it into Jesus. And yet, Jesus did not answer a word. That seems like it would have been a pretty good time to quit. I don't know about you, but how long do you keep on speaking to someone who ignores you? Not only is it frustrating, it's embarrassing and humiliating. It's like you don't exist. And isn't that the sense that you and I can so often get when we pray? Jesus did not answer a word. And if he won't talk to me, then I'm done talking to him. But not this woman. Not this mother. In fact, she was so loud and she was so persistent that the disciples step in and beg Jesus to stop her. Send her away, Lord, for she keeps crying out after us. The disciples up to this point have seen Jesus cast out numerous demons. They know that it is well within his power to do so. Jesus, just give her what she wants and be done with her. But Jesus does not want to send her away because he's not done with her. Jesus answered the disciples, not even her. Jesus answered the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Something that this woman was not. This outsider, this foreigner, this Canaanite, this Gentile woman. You know, you wonder what in her mind she expected or how she expected the rest of that day to go when she woke up that morning. Like, was she expecting Jesus to see her come running off in a distance and throw open his arms and say, here you are, you finally made it. What is it that you need? Oh, Jesus, my daughter has a demon. Of course she does. Let me take care of that right now. Whatever it was that she was expecting, this wasn't it. And it got me wondering how many Christians become atheists because God didn't meet their expectations. Or maybe they don't become atheists, but they settle into that very overpopulated, I'm spiritual but not religious camp. Some of you have been there. You've told me as much. Maybe some of you are there right now. I'm not saying there is no God, but, but I'm just not going to reorient my entire life to a God who just cannot seem to live up to my expectations. He's apparently happy helping and healing and blessing everyone else, just not me. Not in the way that I asked. Not in the way that I expected. That's a pretty popular time to quit God. 
to quit your faith. When you don't feel like a lost sheep of Israel, you just feel lost. First, Jesus ignores her. Then he says he came for people that she is not, and yet she still won't quit. She will not stop. She came and knelt before Jesus, Lord, help me. She prostrates herself in front of Jesus. She lays her face in the dirt and dust of the earth. She gets into the proper position to worship him, and she desperately cries out again, and this has got to be it. Jesus, whatever point you're trying to make, you've made it. Can't you see she needs help? Can't you feel her pain? And Jesus turns to her, finally. He acknowledges her, oh, what's he going to say? Something beautifully comforting and out of this world, no doubt. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Are you kidding me? If your blood is not boiling at having to hear that twice this morning, you ought to check your pulse and see if you're alive or if you're even human. The sentence, that sentence, would have ended Jesus' career as a preacher today. I mean, can you imagine the, the TMZ headline? Religious leader refuses help, calls foreign woman a dog. Forget it. But isn't it interesting, while you and I are busy being offended for her, did you notice how she replied? Jesus calls her a dog, and she says, yes. Yes, Lord. You call me a dog, and I will not argue. That is what I am, and it would not be right. Give the bread to the children. Seat them at the table. But, but, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says to Jesus, gotcha. That's all I needed was just that one word. Call me a dog, Jesus, if it means that I get to be where you are. Call me a dog because I don't need to sit at the table as long as I can sit at your feet. Call me a dog, but give me a dog's due. Call me a dog if it means that I get to lap up the crumbs of your grace because crumbs from you are enough to give me everything I need. You know, you and I do something similar here every week at the beginning of the divine service. And if you're new here, and, and maybe even if you're not, it can sound and feel sort of strange. Scripture actually calls you and me worse things than dogs. 
It says that we're mangy, rotten sinners. We have rebelled against God in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And because that is who we are, because that is what we've done, then what we deserve from God is not a single good thing, but actually His wrath and His punishment forever. But, but we continue, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner that I am, because merciful is what you are. And if I am a sinner, then forgiveness is what you have promised. You call us sinners, Lord. Fine, we will not argue. But because Jesus has come, not for the righteous, but for sinners, then forgiveness is what he has won for me. This woman does the same. She catches Jesus in his words, and Jesus is never so happy to be caught. She hears the harsh-sounding words of Jesus, and she turns them into a blessing, a blessing to even be underneath Christ's table. And what else can Jesus say now? Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus doesn't just give her crumbs. She is no longer a dog. Jesus pulls up a chair and welcomes her as a child to sit at his table. You know, it's funny. You read through this account, and you hear Jesus repeatedly say, No, no, no. And you wonder why this woman didn't just get the point. Why she didn't quit. But read it again. Jesus never actually says no to her. Not once. He's silent. Then he says he came for someone else. Then he calls her a dog. And all without ever saying no. And where Jesus doesn't say no the woman hears a hidden yes. And she clings to that yes with everything she has. She knows Jesus' answer is yes, not based on her or how good she is or how worthy she is, but yes because it's based on who Jesus is and how merciful he is. And she holds him to it, to the great amazement and joy of Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This woman came for a quick word to heal her daughter, and the disciples even agree, Jesus, a quick word would be best. Say it, get it over with, get rid of her. But Jesus wants to give her so much more. He wants to teach her about prayer and patience and perseverance and to strengthen her faith and increase her confidence in his mercy when she came, she had only heard about Jesus. But when she left, she left with Jesus as her very own. So that by the end of this account, you start to realize that it wouldn't have mattered what Jesus said to her. She knew who Jesus was and she was not leaving without his mercy. And Jesus says, wow, what a great big faith you have, lady. 
I think this might be one of the most familiar accounts in all of Scripture. And I don't mean the actual story. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you haven't. What I mean is how familiar this story feels when we line it up alongside our lives. You know what it's like to come before God in utter desperation, to cry, to beg for his help, only to be met with silence, or to feel inadequate, knowing that you don't deserve good things from God, so why bother even asking? But friends, make no mistake, what Jesus taught this woman and his disciples, he also seeks to teach you. He seeks to teach you about prayer. That sometimes God answers our prayers like he answered Peter's prayer last week. When Peter began to drown and he cries out, Lord, save me, and we're told that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. Sometimes Jesus answers prayers like that. But most often, he doesn't. More often it's like this. This interaction with this woman. This is prayer. This is what it looks like to wrestle with God. And he wants you to wrestle with him. And he even wants you to win. He wants you to keep coming back and to never go away. He promises to answer you and bless you and strengthen you for the match. So don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't quit. He promises to give you a great big faith of your own. Not, not the size of your faith, but to give you a faith that clings to a great big God. A faith that clings to Christ's yes in the face of his apparent no. A faith that clings to Christ's forgiveness in the face of your guilt. A faith that clings to the gospel in the face of the harsh words of his law. A faith that clings to his resurrection even in the face of death. And all of this because you, like this woman, know who Jesus is. He is your merciful Savior who lives and longs to hear and answer your prayers. Crumbs from Jesus would be more than we deserve. But crumbs from Jesus is not what he wants to give you. Because you, like her, are no longer a dog, but a beloved child of God, who by grace has been given a seat at his table, your very own place, and he has not been silent to you this morning, already promising you, I forgive you all your sins. I have baptized you as my very own, adopted you into my family. I invite you to dine with me and on me to feast on the bread of God and the wine of heaven, his body and his blood for his children, for your peace and comfort forever. How do you know when it's time to quit? I don't know when it comes to your job or your relationships or your hobbies. But when it comes to your faith, 
When it comes to your God, learn from this woman. Not just because her daughter was ultimately healed, but because this woman was made a daughter to her merciful God in heaven. She clung to Christ's yes, and she went home full. And by the grace of God, so do you. Today and always, amen.